0: Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and an all-around diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because, as usual, we have a lot to talk about. I want you to close your eyes and imagine a fictional character. This character is a nine-year-old boy who meets a woman who turns out to be a witch. And not only is she a witch, she's the caregiver for a bunch of baby dragons. Now, is the little boy in your mind black or white? No judgment here, but most people would say white. But the little boy I'm describing is black, and he's the main character of the new award-winning book, Dragons in a Bag by Zetta Elliott. On episode six of My American Melting Pot, Zeta Elliott, the author of more than 30 books for children and young adults, joins me for a riveting conversation about the need for diverse characters in children's literature. We also talk about how Black people can time travel in fiction without ending up as slaves, Black Viking stories, and why she views self-publishing as an act of resistance. But before we talk to Zeta, we have to pause for a Melting Pot Minute. This Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by the capital letter B. Capital B. Advocating for the uppercase since 1931. Capital B. Hello, Melting Pot community. If you're listening to this episode in real time or sometime within the 28 days after its debut, then we're still in the month of February 2019. And everybody knows that the shortest month of the year means it's Black History Month. So, I thought this would be the perfect time to bring up one of my biggest pet peeves. And that pet peeve is when people write about black people and don't capitalize the letter B. This has been a pet peeve of mine for years. I mean, if you're like me and you make your living writing, you pay attention to words because words matter. And this word matters a lot. Let me break it down for you. The word black in the lowercase refers to the color, you know, like, the black keys on your piano, or the street is black. But black when referring to a person should be capitalized because we are using the word black to identify their ethnic or cultural group. Black with a capital B in the United States refers to people who claim African ancestry and is synonymous with African American, a term that is capitalized. So whenever I see a parade of ethnic groups in a sentence, you know, like, Asian Americans, Latinos, and Blacks have all seen similar gains in their economic status. And Black is the only group in the lower case. It infuriates me. And it also kind of embarrasses me. Am I not worthy of a capital letter? Is there something about Black culture that doesn't merit the uppercase? I've written blog posts, an op-ed in the New York Times, and even started a change.org petition to have the rules officially changed about the letter B. Really, I'm waiting for the Associated Press to officially change their style guide and make a capital B mandatory and not just optional for all mainstream newspapers, magazines, and publishers when referring to Black people. In the meantime, I'll keep talking, tweeting, and writing about this issue and waiting for individual writers and media outlets to make the change on their own. And I applaud each and every one of you who have already done so. Words matter. Labels matter. And Black people deserve a word to describe themselves that's written in the uppercase. Now, speaking of words and writing, let's get to our conversation with author Zeta Elliott <laughs> Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Zetta Elliott. Oh my
1: goodness, I'm so happy to be here and to finally meet you in person, Lori.
0: Well, I'm so happy too. And full disclosure to everybody listening, I have been a fan of Zetta's work since I discovered <laughs> one of her books, A Wish After Midnight, years ago. And I was trying wow. to figure out when did I you know, discover that book, but I know I was living in Brooklyn. And I found the book, and it's um, this story about a young Black teenager who lives in contemporary Brooklyn, and she finds herself... Traveling Back in Time to Civil War-era Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I read that book, and I just loved it. And I was in my 20s, my mid to late 20s (laughs) when I read it. But it was just so different than anything I'd ever seen. And I was a voracious reader as a child. I read everything, but I really very rarely saw myself in the books I was reading, and particularly in a time-traveling story, Exactly. which just— amazing. It's so much. I loved it so much. And I literally held on to that book until I had children of my oh. own. <laughs> and when they became of age, uh-huh. I gave them, I had two boys and they're now 14 and 17, but I must've given it to them when they were like 12, 11, 12, 13. Yeah. And they loved it. Oh, that's awesome. And just as a follow up, my son went to, my 14 year old went to summer camp And I sent him the sequel because I found it and he loved it too. (laughs) So so you're in my entire family. You're like, this is such a big deal that I finally get to meet you. So throughout this episode, everybody, you're just going to hear me gushing and gushing and gushing (laughs) because Zeta Elliott is the real deal. So we're going to be talking about all things writing, but also about your work as an activist in the publishing industry. So let's though start from the beginning. And um, I know you recently moved to Philadelphia. So, I did. But can you tell everybody where you grew up and if you always wanted to be a writer?
1: Well, you'll probably hear my accent as I talk, because even though I've lived here for 25 years, I spent my first 21 years in Canada. I'm Canadian. I grew up outside of Toronto. For my first eight years, I was in a sort of a semi-rural area that was being turned into a suburb. And I had an interesting sort of community. At my school, I was almost always the only child of color in the class. But I have an older sister, and I had an older brother at the time as well who was adopted, and he's Afro-Caribbean. And our next-door neighbors, we had two or three neighbors who were interracial families. So I did have around me kids who looked like me, not necessarily in my classroom, but I could see them. I did not have books that were mirrors, if we're going to borrow from Rudine Sims Bishop and her metaphor of books being mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. My mother was my kindergarten teacher. Both my parents are teachers. We didn't have a lot of books at home, but when my mother was at school with me, we definitely read Ezra Jack Keats's books. So that was sort of the only mirror I had in a book until I got to be, I would say, maybe eight or nine, and then Mildred D. Taylor. Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, and because that book won the Newbery Medal, one of the most prestigious prizes in children's literature, it was in my library, and it probably would not have been otherwise. And I remember reading that book over and over and over again. So I very, very clearly understood that Black people existed in the past. My mother identifies as white, and she presents as white, but she's actually what used to be called an octoroon. She's one-eighth Black. So my grandmother, my mother's mother, identified as Negro. She also presented as white, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but was very proud that she was an Allen. So to get a little Philly history mixed in here. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother believed she was the grandniece of Bishop Richard Allen. And so we had a lot of Bishop Richard Allen paraphernalia in my home, or at least in my grandmother's home growing up. And there used to be a restaurant in Toronto called the Underground Railroad, and it really was underground. And then you went underground and there were tables that had red and white checkered tablecloths, then paper placemats with famous abolitionists. And Richard Allen was always figured on these placemats. That is
0: exciting. You could color them in or you could
1: bring them home. So I had a sense of my family's history. I knew that we came from the Philadelphia area and migrated to Canada in the 1830s or 40s. My father's Caribbean. I knew when his family had come up in the 1950s. I was interested in history. I won the history award in the eighth grade. But I only wrote stories when I was required to for class. Like, I don't think I understood writing as a profession until I was 13 and I had an outstanding English teacher. I had her for two years, actually, Nancy Vickard. And she held me back after one semester and just said, you know, if you want to be a writer, you will be. And I just looked at her like, what are you, nuts? Like, you don't just decide. And she was like, of course you do. How do you think it works? You decide, and then you write every day. And she said it like such seriousness that I was like, oh, I hadn't figured this out. So I started writing outside of school. She had always, you know, lavished my writing with praise in school. I remembered writing my first novel at 15, and it was terrible. And Lori, I keep everything. I threw that out.
0: Oh. <laughs> it was that bad. But you wrote a novel at 15.
1: I started a novel Oh, you started. Okay. okay, okay. I started my first novel, and then— You know, I think over time I realized that writing shorter things was a bit easier, although I still, I'm not good at writing short stories. I've only finished one. But if you're an English major, you're always writing about literature. You're analyzing literature. I couldn't decide if I wanted to be a history major or an English major in college, so I kept switching back and forth. And I took creative writing in high school and had an F and so dropped it. So studying creative writing didn't make a lot of sense to me, but I knew I had a voice and I knew I had stories. And My father's stepmother, my grandmother on that side, she was working on a memoir. And so I had people in my family who valued stories, passing on stories. And I think if I hadn't had that, I probably wouldn't have taken the next step to say, I have a story that can be written down and then shared with other people.
0: So... Tell us what you ended up doing career-wise, like what was the path you followed in college? So I went
1: to university in Quebec, Mm -hmm. Bishop's University, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't decide on a major, so I ended up with humanities, which (laughs) let me do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And then I I had never had a black educator, you know, so my father was a a high school teacher, uh, and obviously I grew up around him, but I had never had a, a black teacher until my last semester of my last year of university And Dr. Jerry Tucker introduced me to Jamaica Kincaid and Toni Morrison. And then I met another mixed-race woman on campus, Kate, and she loaned me Mary J. What's the 411? And, uh, And that just literally those three texts kind of changed the course of my life. And by the end of that semester, I was hanging out with a different group of people. And at the time, I was pretty angry because I had been studying medieval history and Victorian literature. And I just thought I've wasted 20 years of my life. And my father was living in Brooklyn. And he said, come live with me. And I just moved to Brooklyn and fell in love. Had never been in a majority Black space before. My stepsister, her whole room, the entire wall was just a bookcase full of books. And she had been a Black studies major. And she was like, read whatever you want. And I just literally like went from one end of the shelf to the other. And read everything I could and decided I'm gonna move here and I'm going to do another undergraduate degree and do it right this time. And then I, I eventually did have to go back to Toronto and I met a professor at York University, a white professor who was teaching black literature. And she said, You don't do another undergraduate degree, Zeta, you go to graduate school. And then I just realized I wasn't gonna to go to graduate school in Canada if I couldn't have black professors, and I couldn't at that time. So I came back to New York and applied to graduate school and I I had an offer from NYU and Columbia and chose NYU and most of my professors were black and almost all of my cohort was black. I had never had that kind of experience before. And then most of the people that I became friends with were writers and would say, oh, I'm a writer, I'm a poet. And I had never said that out loud to anyone before. So that was really radical for me.
0: That's so interesting because I have such a similar background and I didn't grow up in Canada. But I was like Canada adjacent in Wisconsin. Oh,
1: (laughs) yes, you were.
0: (laughs) But that idea of being surrounded by whiteness. And then I also moved to Brooklyn and suddenly it was like black people exist and they don't exist in this like narrow vision. It was so enlightening. Like I tell everybody I grew up in Brooklyn and they say, they're like, I thought you were from Wisconsin. I'm like, yes, but I became myself in Brooklyn. It
1: was the first place I felt like I belonged. I remember being there for maybe a week and people came up to me to ask directions because they looked at me and thought I was from Brooklyn. And that, I had never had that in Canada because people would always say, where are you from? Because the assumption is always, if you're brown, that you must be from somewhere else.
0: So clearly throughout this story you're telling, books became the vehicles for you to find yourself and to identify like who you wanted to be and Gave Mm -hmm. you even like a path in some ways. Absolutely. So what was the first book you wrote and what was that for you? And were you thinking like, I want this book to do for somebody what other books have done for me? Or was it just like, I'm going to write a book about, you know, like, you know, something different.
1: So I was already working with kids and I was teaching creative writing at the Frederick Douglass Creative Arts Center. And I had to teach kids how to write picture books. And so I made a few myself and took them in, and they loved them. And I had a little girl whose mother was in prison, and she was having anger issues at school. I tried to find a book that was a mirror for her and couldn't find anything. So I wrote a book for her, An Angel for Mariqua. So I had all these manuscripts. I got to a point where I had about 20 manuscripts. And I bought the Writer's Market Children's Guide to Publishing and started querying agents and querying editors and they would say, Zetta, you write beautifully, but there's no market for books like these. Which I knew wasn't true because I was working with all these kids who needed the stories. And then I met an editor who said, let's have lunch. And she worked at Lee and Lowe. And she ultimately left Lee and Lowe. <laughs> but then I moved to Louisiana. And I got to Louisiana, Baton Rouge, about a week or two before Katrina hit. And then Katrina just changed everything. And I felt like my imagination just got activated and I was writing furiously. I was writing plays. I was writing job applications. Should I do an MFA? I've just got this PhD. What am I doing? Should I apply for other jobs? And I got into an MFA program, but I also resubmitted a story to Lee and Lowe because they have a contest called the New Voices Contest. And uh, the rule is you're not allowed to submit anything to the New Voices Contest that has been previously rejected by Lee and (laughs) Lowe. But I had this story, Bird, and I just felt like someone needed to give it a chance. So they had rejected it twice, and then I submitted it to the contest, and it won won the honor award. So I was going to have my first picture book, and I got accepted into an MFA program, and I got a visiting assistant professor position at Mount Holyoke for three years. And I decided, all right, I'm going to go with the picture book, but I am not going to go with the MFA. I'm going to stick to being a professor, and that was a good balance for quite a while to teach a 2-2 load at a small liberal arts college and then be able to write on the side.
0: So um, one of the things I love so much about your books is that they give people who look like me or who looked like me when I was younger um, or my children images of themselves in books that we never see ourselves in, in sci-fi, in fantasy, in time traveling, books with dragons. Right. Like, where do your ideas come from for these stories that, again, like, <laughs> dragons in a bag that you just published, that's already won so many awards, so many accolades, the book that I told you about, Wish After Midnight, time traveling in Civil War, Brooklyn, and I mean ghosts and I mean (laughs) your stories are amazing where does this come from well you know a lot of
1: it is trauma unfortunately when you grow up as a child and you never see yourself reflected you can either erase yourself and become white identified right you start to identify with the people who are doing the wonderful things you wish you could do or you sort of carry within yourself a wound so that I loved fantasy fiction and I loved stories about magic carpets and phoenixes and The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and The Secret Garden. I mean, those those were some of my favorite books and they made such an impression on me. Mm. I don't think that ever leaves you. But once you start to decolonize your imagination, once you're able to theorize your experience, and I have to say graduate school was difficult. (laughs) It's sort of an endurance test and I did have the stamina to finish, but the best skill I developed was the ability to theorize my own experience. So to go back to those books as an adult who has been trained as a scholar to do literary analysis was incredible so that as a Black feminist, I can say, I see how this book drew me in. I see how this book did not love me back. How can I talk back to a book that didn't love me, but that I still love? So when you were talking about A Wish After Midnight, reading that in your 20s, I read Kindred in my 20s, right? By Octavia of Butler, course, the course. ultimate black yes. girl time travel novel. Yes. And I was so angry a lot of my 20s I was angry because I just thought if I had read that as a teenager, what would that I would have radicalized me. I mean, I can't even imagine what might have been possible. I might have burned some stuff down, but you know, I would have been able to channel my energy in in different directions.
0: So what does time travel look like then for a Black person? Because a lot of people think, well, Black people can't be in time travel stories because we just would have been slaves.
1: Yeah. I remember reading Dessa Rose by Shirley Ann Williams. And in her preface, she says she wanted to write historical fiction because she realized there was nowhere in the Black past she could go and be free. Which, of course, isn't true. Because course, exactly. Because <laughs> when you start looking at the Black past, there are so many ways in which Black people sought and achieved liberation. There's all of African history, of course, and there's so many moments of resistance, and that's what she ultimately achieved in Desa Rose. But I think for me, reading something like Kindred and deciding how do I make something I'm passionate about, because I love Black history. I think I just love history, period. But the unfortunate thing is that a lot of historians are very bad storytellers, and so they're able to do this intense archival research. But they aren't able to make that into a narrative that really appeals to people. And so I was working with kids in Brooklyn, and I was so excited about Weeksville, the second largest free black community in the United States prior to the Civil War. And those kids lived next to Weeksville. They would walk past it every day and just had no interest. And I thought, well, how do I hook them? Well, the way you hook young people is to add a little bit of magic. And of course, when you're using time travel as a device, you build in an opportunity to contrast and compare different historical moments. So at the time I started writing Wish After Midnight, Timothy McVeigh had just been convicted for blowing up the Oklahoma City building, the federal building, and I I wanted to have a conversation about terrorism because my dissertation was on lynching. Mm -hmm. And it was frustrating to me that I understood a history of terrorism in the United States that most people weren't aware of. And when I talked to young people about lynching, they'd never heard of it. And I had a picture book about lynching. I mean, I was trying to write about it in a lot of different ways, And then I found out about the New York City draft riots. And I thought, okay, the New York City draft riots, that's required reading for social studies students, I think, in the ninth grade in New York. Wouldn't it be great if there was a historical novel that they could read? So historical fantasy, borrowing from Ramon Saldivar, his understanding of it, historical fantasy doesn't offer an escape. Time travel isn't about leaving your world behind. It's about a deeper, more meaningful engagement with your world. And it's about addressing the absence of justice. So for me to have a 15-year-old girl who's dealing with some pretty serious stuff in contemporary Brooklyn, right? Her older brother's been arrested for dealing drugs. Her father, an immigrant, left the family in the country because he couldn't find work. Her mother is overworked and tired and deals with microaggressions on a daily basis and just doesn't want to deal with white people at all. Her older sister is light-skinned and pretty and Jenna is dark-skinned and she's she's super smart. She wants to find a way out. And then she makes this fateful wish and she gets sent back in time. And she's almost dealing with a lot of the same issues when she goes back in time. Slavery has been abolished in New York since 1827, but is she free? And then her boyfriend gets sent back in time as well. And then they have this uprising of mostly white immigrants, mostly Irish rather, immigrants who don't want the competition, who don't know what to do with free Black people in the city. And that led to Black people leaving New York. And as someone who... Love New York so much, but then ultimately it had to leave as well. I think I'm always thinking, as an immigrant does, I'm always thinking about migration and displacement, but also agency. How do we put young people into a situation where they find out they have more power than they realized? And, you know, the American story of power is that leaders rise up But the sort of more African-centered narrative of power is that communities come together and we build connections and we build alliances and bridges. And that's how we get by. That's how we get to freedom. So I'm interested in building communities. Dragons in a Bag was so much fun to write, but it's also about gentrification. It's about displacement in Brooklyn, right? Birthright citizenship. These, (laughs) These dragons are born in Brooklyn. Are they Brooklyn citizens? Can they stay in Brooklyn or do they need to go back? To where their roots are.
0: That's what I just, I really just love the way you're able to marry contemporary issues, particularly for children of color, so that they don't have to suspend their belief. Like, the beautiful thing about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was one of my favorites, too, I have to say, when I found out that Turkish Delight was an actual candy, (laughs) I was so excited. (laughs) And it's horrible. It's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you think so. I was like, oh, my God, it's so bad.
1: You see <laughs> really why pretty. they put powdered sugar on it. It's
0: <laughs> <laughs> so disgusting. But, I mean, that's how real it was for me. And it was, you know, wartime, right? I mean, and th- there yeah. was, it meant something. Yeah. So fantasy didn't, wasn't like, you know, you had to put yourself into this, like, complete other world. there was so still connection interesting
1: because my editor at Random House initially, when she read the book, she said, I think we need to change the introduction because the first chapter is Jackson and his mother. She needs a babysitter because she has to go to court to fight eviction. And This is editor, dragons in a bag? Dragons in a bag, yeah. Mm-hmm. And my editor felt that that was too sad. And, you know, if you've got dragons on the cover and dragons in the title, kids are going to have this expectation. And I was like, lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, they're hiding from the Blitz. Harry Potter, <laughs> his parents are murdered. I'm like, a lot of fantasy <laughs> fiction starts in a fairly grim place. And that's the need for magic,
0: right? Right. And I always talk about that there needs to be magical realism in the African-American world. And so I just really appreciate how you're able to, I don't even say able if it's a magical gift, because probably more people could do it if they tried to think about how to take different people's realities and bring them to the page.
1: If you're willing to write against convention. And I think that's really the challenge, is that you have to, A, be willing to write against conventions of fantasy fiction. And then you have to recognize that if you go against convention, a lot of editors are simply going to give you a thumbs down.
0: So let's talk about that, because editors have given your work the thumbs down. Yes. But you didn't (laughs) let that. You didn't stop. You didn't say, well, I guess I can't be a writer then. Or, oh, I guess I should start writing about happy black children and see if that works. You created your own imprint. You started self-publishing. Tell me about that. Tell me what made you decide to do your own thing and how that's been going for you.
1: Yeah, well, it was rejection. You know, you get enough rejection. And it was the kind of rejection that I was getting. The Zeta Elliott, you write beautifully. Well, how are you going to tell me I write beautifully and then say there's no market for books like these? I was fortunate in that I started to try to get published after I'd had some training in graduate school and because I had this black feminist lens, I could apply that and say, let me break this down. Is it really me? Are they saying, Zeti, you can't write? And no, that's not what they're saying. So there's something larger and systemic going on. And when I discovered the statistics compiled annually by the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, it shows that I don't need to take rejection personally because hardly any black people get published by the children's publishing industry in the oh. United States. Like, it's appalling. I mean, I think we were over 100 at this point, black kidlet creators having a book published in the United States. But that's out of, you know, 10,000 books published annually. I mean, it's it's absolutely horrific. And so once I understood it wasn't me, then I started looking for other options. And I did have a friend, Pam Booker, who's from Philadelphia. And she had just self-published a book. And then my cousin said to me, did you know you can hire freelance illustrators? There are these websites where you can just go and hire a, an illustrator and it's not that expensive. And so I did have to get over the stigma because there's a lot of stigma around self-publishing and people call it just, oh, it's a vanity thing. And I, I wasn't operating out of a sense of vanity. I wanted to have books that served the kids in my community and the fact that the industry, the traditional publishing industry, had no interest or investment in the kids in my community meant that I was going to have to find an alternative. And so, you know, Audre Lorde and Barbara Smith and Sherry Moraga, I mean, we have these amazing women of color feminists who have started their own presses, Kitchen Table Women of Color Press. There's there's precedent for this. So I didn't feel as though I had no option. There was a third way. The third way was to self-publish using print-on-demand technology. That's different than offset printing. I do have friends who use offset printing, but you need a $10,000 deposit to get your two to 3,000 hardcover books, and then you have to store them somewhere. And in New York, I wasn't going to have books in my bathtub, so I just decided. <laughs> Print-on-demand technology worked for me because you didn't have to put down any money up front, and you only paid for the books you wanted to print. So I was a professor at the time. I did have some disposable income. I could set aside $1,000, hire an illustrator, hire a designer, get the whole thing put together in a matter of weeks. This book of mine, The Deep, it's one of my favorite fantasy novels. And I showed it to a traditional publisher and they said it would take two years for them to put it out. That's standard for traditional publishing. And, you know, once I had my manuscript done and and the cover art done, it took me four days to make that book. Wow. Four days, right? And then it's automatically online on Amazon's website It's available through distributors. Bookstores can carry it, although most of them refuse to support indie authors, which is unfortunate. But it was so empowering. I describe self-publishing as an act of resistance, and it's also a black feminist act of radical self-care, to borrow from Audre Lorde once again, because when you are told over and over again your stories don't matter, what you end up hearing is you don't matter. Your voice doesn't matter. The people you're writing for don't matter to us. And that is hard. That takes its toll on your psyche and on your spirit and on your voice. How do you continue to push through? I just saw an article by Roxane Gay. She said, if I was waiting to have the confidence to write, I would have nothing written. Right? So you have to do everything you can to sort of protect yourself, encourage yourself. And every time I make another book, I look at it and I feel a sense of pride. And I know that even if it only reaches... I had someone say to me once, a white woman librarian, well, you can't self-publish because self-published books never sell more than a hundred copies. And I just thought, wow, we have a different definition of success because if a hundred kids read one of my books, I would be okay with that. Really. And it is nice when instead it's a thousand people or it's 10,000 people. But I think of writing and publishing as sowing seeds You don't know who out there needs that book in their hands in this moment right now, not two years from now, not 10 years from now. And we'll never know how many phenomenal black writers simply gave up because they knocked on that traditional door and the door remained closed. So we can either continue to give most of our power to gatekeepers or we can do what I'm doing, which is sort of a hybrid model. So I do have an agent and I do submit my manuscripts through her to the big presses, and I have some books coming up in the next few years. But in the meantime, when I get that advance money, I turn around and self-publish. I do it
0: myself. I love that. I love that model. And I think it really speaks to this idea that, you know, so many people think it's either or. They say, oh, traditional publishers didn't take my work, so I have to self-publish. Right? Or like you said, they give up. But there's no reason why you can't do both. You have to have multiple strategies. It's such a big system that
1: you have to confront when you're publishing that I really think having multiple strategies is a better idea. And some people think if you self-publish, then you've ruined your chances of getting a traditional publishing deal. And I'm proof that that's simply not true. I think right now the publishing industry is so desperate to not do the work of finding and developing promoting authors that if you have established the fact that you can do it yourself, They actually value that expertise. Not all of them, but some of them.
0: Have you had any books that you self-published that then the traditional publishers picked up and said, oh, can we publish that now? A
1: Wish After Midnight.
0: Mm.
1: I self-published A Wish After Midnight. Really? Yes. In 2008, I self-published it. And then in 2009, I got an email from Amazon that was not the standard, your product has shipped. It was an editor, Alex, in Seattle, and he said, you know, my boss just put your book on my desk and I can't stop reading it, and we would love to republish it, and all we'll do is put a new cover on it, and that's what they did. So Amazon was starting its own publishing company, which is now massive, and at the time that imprint was called Amazon Encore, and it was dedicated to finding self-published books that were of high quality that simply weren't reaching an audience because they didn't have a promotional team behind them. So yeah, they designed a new cover, and they put it out there.
0: Did they publish the sequel as well?
1: They did not. (laughs) (laughs) They published Ship of Souls, which is another fantasy novel set in Brooklyn that focuses on Prospect Park and Revolutionary War history and the African burial ground in Lower Manhattan. They published that, so I didn't even have to self-publish that. They just said, what else do you have? And I showed it to them, and they published that. And they did an audiobook and an ebook at the same time. And the great thing about having worked with Amazon on those two books is that they never retire a title. Almost every other month I get an email from them saying your book is on promotion in Germany. And they, yeah, apparently great. it's quite popular in Germany. Wow. So they keep they'll keep promoting the book, right? They didn't do a single print run. They don't have remaindered leftover books. They just keep printing books as they need them. But then the next book I took to them was a sequel to Ship of Souls, The Deep. And that was the book where they hemmed and hawed. And first they said yes, and then they said no, and then they said yes, but in two years. And at that point, I was becoming a bit more adept at self-publishing. And I just thought, this isn't a story I want to wait on. I do that now. So right now I have over a dozen picture book manuscripts, and I have a middle grade novel, and I have a young adult dystopian. I have like all these manuscripts that are sitting on my hard drive, essentially. And I I decide, should I give this to my agent can she sell it? If she sells it, how long will it take? So when I moved to Philadelphia, I almost immediately started writing a novel called Sin's Mark, and it's set in the historic Woodland Cemetery. It's a ghost story.
0: Ooh. Yeah. And, and actually, I've seen the cover for it's that. It's creepy, it looks right? creepy. <laughs> <laughs> it's this black woman holding
1: out a bloody hand. We'll put a link to that on the page. <laughs> but that was a book I really felt urgent about. I had a sense of urgency that it needed to come out now. And maybe that was because I was here and I was looking for a way to connect with people. But I knew if I showed it to my agent and she shopped it around, you're looking at two to three years. And so I published it myself and it was published. I finished it. took me five weeks to write. So I finished Wait, it maybe- Wait, what? Five yeah, weeks? five weeks to write. Because if it's worked out in my head, I can actually write fairly quickly. Writing is 70% dreaming for me. So if I get that dream time in- and ha- not having a job, that helps. I have a lot of time for dreaming. Then by the time I actually sit down to write, the writing doesn't take that long.
0: Wow. Okay. And then the
1: publishing doesn't take that long if I'm using print on demand. So by uh, Halloween, it was published.
0: What perfect timing for a creepy novel set in cemetery. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Bookstores won't carry it. It's an indie title, so that's unfortunate. But it's available. And How would people
0: get it? They would go on Amazon then? They could go on
1: Amazon, yep. Yeah, I mean bookstores can order it. They can request. You can go to your favorite indie bookstore and ask them to order it and see what happens. But yeah, most bookstores have a policy where they won't they won't order self-published books.
0: So you said, you know, the benefit of not having a job, which I'd like to just correct. You do have a job. You're a writer, publisher, educator, activist. Like, that's work. But I do have to say, like, that I love following you on social media because it seems like you're always in another country. (laughs) And I'm asking, are you researching? Are you letting yourself get inspired? Talk to me about, I know you recently went to Sweden. I was
1: in Sweden. I went to Stockholm on January 4th. So I am an introvert, and I am a homebody, and I would say I spend probably 80% of my time alone, and I like it that way. I do miss teaching, but I do spend a lot of time inside my head, and that means that social media is important for me because it's sort of my main way of connecting with a lot of people. And because I did just move to Philly, I have some friends here, but a lot of my friends are around the world. And I used to say that almost everything I write can be traced back to something I saw on PBS. Because I do watch PBS a lot and I get incredible ideas from I love documentaries and yeah. So these days I would say almost everything I write I can trace back to something I saw on Facebook. And I, somebody, I don't remember who, posted an article about a burial, a grave in ninth century Sweden on an island called Birka. And they found a ring and it was a woman's ring and it had not been worn by anyone other than this woman. It didn't have the signs of having been passed around, but it was silver alloy, and it was a beautiful purple, which is my favorite color, purple stone, which they thought might have been amethyst, but turns out to be a glass bead, and it bore the inscription, To Allah. So we know we have, quite likely, a Muslim woman, or at least someone who's had contact with Muslim society, wearing this ring that was so valuable to her that she was buried with it in the ninth century in Sweden. And my mind just went running with that because I am a medieval geek and I love the Middle (laughs) Ages and have been looking for a way to write about the Middle Ages. But, you know, I was always thinking about how to put people of color into the Middle Ages, which isn't hard to do because we were there. And if you follow, you know, Twitter folks like Medieval POC, they're just awesome because they constantly upload and share images from the Middle Ages, from the Renaissance period that feature black people. But I just decided, I was like, well, she's wearing this ring. Like, where could she have come from? So I started doing more research. And it turns out, when you're talking about Scandinavia and Viking culture, the Vikings who were in Norway and Denmark tended to raid west. So we see them, you know, sacking monasteries in England. And we see them going farther abroad to Newfoundland. And, but the ones who were in the east, in what became Sweden, were traders. And they traded to Russia they traded to constantinople they traded to baghdad mm-hmm. so if they're in iraq guess what there are black people in iraq there are bantu ethnic bantus who were being trafficked from the swahili coast into iraq to work on sugar plantations plus we have bantu women being trafficked as sex slaves
0: so while you were in sweden just recently what was the research you were doing so and what did you the find ring
1: is in Sweden at the Swedish History Museum. And there was an exhibit on Vikings that was going to close on January 6th, and it wouldn't reopen again for two years. And so I decided I had to get over there to see this exhibit. And I was emailing the museum to say, is the ring part of the exhibit? And nobody got back to me. So I get to the exhibit. I I flew into Sweden. I got there at like at noon on the 5th of January. And I literally like took a shower and went right to the museum because I got a hotel down the street from the museum. And I got to the one of the display cases that had all this jewelry. And I was like, oh, yes, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. And there's a picture of it on the wall as soon as you walk into the museum. And there's a little card that says some of the items normally included in this exhibit have been removed. And I panicked, but I kept reading. And it said, you can find them upstairs in the History Unfolds exhibit. So I finished looking around at everything. I was taking a thousand different pictures. And then I went upstairs and there was the ring. There was the ring next to a statue of the Buddha next to a necklace that had been made, I think, in Yemen. So they have all this evidence, and they're not hiding it. I was really impressed with that. The text that went along with it was, we need to recognize that Sweden has always been open to other people, right? And with the current migrant crisis, and all of this anxiety about cultures that are incompatible, that just isn't, it has never been true. They found a tunic in another grave somewhere in Scandinavia that had Arabic script on it. If that was your most prized possession, that you wanted to be buried in it, that doesn't necessarily mean you were Muslim, but it means you you had some value Contact. and interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just feel like I take what's left. Mm. And then I set up some parameters. So I have the things that have actually happened. And then I speculate. I write speculative fiction. I, I imagine ways that I could fill in the gaps. And when it comes to Black women, we've been written out of history for ever, And I just feel like that's something that I can do, and that's something I like to do. Like, Not everybody wants to do historical research. It is a pain in the butt. I only use 10 to 15% of what I find, so it's really overwhelming to just have all of this data and all of these dates and all of this information and for me to write, you know, so I have to know about Baghdad. I have to know about the Swahili coast. I have to know about Scandinavia, you know, and you have to know about it in 800, and then you just use a little bit of it for world building. And you try, I do think most of my stories are character driven. I think people are drawn in because they care about the characters. And then it's nice that they get to see a little bit of Brooklyn in 1863 or they get to see Philadelphia, you know, something from the 1860s as well. It's empowering and it's a big responsibility. I take that seriously, especially writing historical fiction, but I couldn't imagine doing anything else.
0: What's been the reaction to your books? Like, Have your books reached their intended audiences since you're really trying to reach kids who don't see themselves often in literature?
1: Yeah, that is the greatest reward. I have to say that when I talk about having your own definition of success or when somebody said self-published books never sell more than 100 copies, I just think of all the letters and because of social media, the photos I get of kids holding up the book and saying, I remember when I published self-published The Deep, And Nyla is this kind of Afro-punk. She could be your daughter, actually, Lori. She's got a shaved head and she's got all these piercings and she's kind of peering out of the darkness. And a teacher in California sent me a picture of her student holding up the book and she's got a shaved head and she's got this spiked hair and it's this, you know, Afro-punk black girl just saying, finally, a book that looks like me. And she must have been 15 or 16 years old. And that kind of response it's sort of like a testimonial, right? Like I had a teacher on Twitter say just last week, you know, I have this interracial group of students and we were doing a read aloud of Dragons in a Bag and my black student stayed behind to say, Jackson kind of looks like me Mm. and we have other things in common. And then she sent me a picture of her whole class and they were all giving two thumbs up to Dragons in a Bag and the boy in the middle holding the book was a little blonde haired, blue eyed, white boy. And a friend of mine emailed me and said, I can't believe she put the white boy in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, but look at that other tweet where the black boy saw himself. And it matters just as much that these white children can say, I identify too, right? So often we reduce the idea of the mirror book to, do you see an exact replica of yourself in this book? And that's that's not how mirrors work really, right? And even windows, if you pass a window at the right angle with the right light, it is a mirror. You see yourself. So that when kids are reading Harry Potter, I have friends who are, women of color scholars, and they're doing an anthology right now about their love of Harry Potter, because you have to navigate books in a particular way when you have been erased from the cast. But then it's also significant that books that are inclusive and have diverse casts, they do something for white children. When white kids see themselves over and over and over again, it's damaging you are not preparing your child to live in a global society if you are giving them books where they only see themselves again and again.
0: I always say that it's actually my most retweeted tweet (laughs) is the fact that I said that white children need diverse books as well because they need access to people of color.
1: Absolutely. Our schools are more segregated than ever, right? Schools are resegregating. Most of the kids that I work with, the kids of color, the black and brown kids, they don't have white friends. There are no white kids at their school, unless their neighborhood is gentrifying, then they might. But if you don't have a meaningful way of interacting with someone who's different from you, a book might be your best bet to meet someone who's different, to develop empathy. And that's why Rudine Sims Bishop's metaphor is so significant, because it's mirrors, windows, and sliding glass door. The divide between the reader and the characters can disappear. You open that door, you step into the world, and that's where the potential for empathy exists. And so I've had librarians say to me, you know, when I have my books spread out on a table, and yes, most of them have black children on the cover, and the librarian who's a white woman will say, oh, Zedda, your books are lovely, and I would love to have them at my school, but we don't have any black kids. She actually said that, and I was like, wow, that's why you need these books. Like, people think that books that are inclusive are somehow a favor that you're doing for marginalized groups.
0: No, 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 no. no. (laughs) That's not it. It's so not the truth. And that is the mistake that so many people make is that these are books for black children. Well, yes, these are books great for black children, but these are books that white children, Asian children, Latino children, so that they understand, again, because maybe this is the only black child they're ever going to meet is in this book. Maybe this is the only Asian person that they're ever going to meet is in this book. What an excellent way to get them prepared for a, a global society. Right. And then we have things like Black Panther.
1: Mm -hmm. and movies with Will Smith and rap music. I mean, there are so many ways in which culture that is produced by black people gets consumed by largely white audiences. The idea, I don't understand how publishers, they only acquire books that they think they can sell to white children.
0: That just kills me. It is the biggest question I always have when they say, well, I don't think I can sell this. And it's like, White America buys everything that black people do and they worship the god of Beyonce and (laughs) Oprah. Right. I don't understand why you think that they couldn't buy into, you know, a book with a main character who is black. And I think it
1: has to do with their marketing teams because the marketing team is not going to do anything to reach out to the black community. They're not going to send the book, my books. They don't send them to Essence for review. They don't try to get them on black radio, which is the main way I think that black people could find out about books. And so they're walking away from money. I'm like, you know, black people have a trillion dollars in spending power. And every year I do these annual lists of middle grade and young adult novels by black authors. And those lists on my blog get the most hits year after year after year after year, day after day, people are visiting those lists because teachers and librarians or parents are like, I had no idea that all these books got published. I mean, all, we're talking 65, 75 books. But you see the same three Black authors on rotation over and over and over again. And they all again. died
0: like 10, 15 <laughs> years ago. You'd think that there was nobody. Ma- like, I love Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, yes. but like, it's not the only Look, book out but now, there. But
1: now what they'll do is they'll say, well, Walter Dean Myers has passed away, but his heir is Jason Reynolds. And so you see Jason everywhere. You see Kwame Alexander everywhere. Yes. Do you know that there are other Black men <laughs> writing books? <laughs> what? Right. And Jackie Woodson, she's a phenomenal writer. She's the children's laureate for the United States. There are so many other writers. Tomi Adeyemi, fantastic. Did you read Nnedi Okorafor's books? Right, like for a white audience, that's new and exciting for them. But black people have been writing Afrofuturistic and speculative narratives for decades, for centuries. So if you did a bit of research, but you would have to dig because they aren't being promoted in the same way. Yes.
0: So just to wrap up, my final question for you Although I could keep talking to you forever, which, again, we, <laughs> since you live in Philadelphia now, yeah, we can, we I can have tea. Yeah, we can have I tea. Do. <laughs> um, but I wanted to just ask, what's your message to content creators themselves? Like, what do you wish for future authors, current authors and the publishing industry to do as it relates to creating more diverse characters?
1: Well, I'm a firm believer in community-based publishing, and one of the ways we can achieve that is by having organic writing coming from within our community, using print-on-demand technology, digital publishing platforms. The traditional publishing industry is still an option. I encourage everybody to keep their options open, but when you know that less than 3% of kidlit creators are Black, if you're Black, that means you have... A long road ahead of you, and you're probably going to face a lot of rejection unless you're writing the kinds of things that white editors and marketers want to promote to a white audience. And so I think the first thing you have to do is understand why you're writing. You have to have your own definition of success as a writer. If you want to be on the New York Times bestseller list, you're going to have to write a particular kind of story. And maybe you're good at that. I know that I'm not, and so I don't aspire to that. If you choose only to self-publish, you are going to have other challenges because most review journals will not review self-published books. As I said, most indie bookstores won't carry self-published books, so you have to be doing a lot of the marketing and promotion yourself, and that's possible through social media. That's certainly how I operate. I think we need more voices and more different kinds of stories, and I honestly, don't think that that is the priority of the traditional publishing industry. So don't put all your eggs into one basket. Try to keep an open mind in terms of self-publishing. More and more people are self-publishing. The quality of the books is going up. Do your research. Find out which options are best for you. Give yourself time so that if you have a project that does not feel urgent. Give yourself six months to query agents, and it is worth it to query an agent because most of the big publishers will not even look at a manuscript unless it comes from an agent. If it feels a bit more urgent to you, you can self-publish, or you can go to a small press that will look at manuscripts that are not agented. And that was, I guess, the route I took because Lee and Lowe doesn't require you to have an agent. And there are some small presses that will have a window during the year, will two months where they will look at manuscripts that don't come from an agent So, I mean, I have to say that submitting manuscripts, that can feel like a part-time job. It's a lot of work because there's a lot of research to do. But it's okay to write a book and self-publish it and just have it at home next to your bed. I mean, really, the benefits of doing that, what it means when you give yourself permission to tell your story your way without having someone else telling you what to do. It is not easy to work in the traditional industry because almost all of the publishing professionals are white women. Straight, white, cisgender women who don't have disabilities and they don't have the cultural competence necessarily to assess stories that come from different cultures and different parts of the world. I mean, what if you write a story and you just want to share it with your kids? What if your grandmother used to sing you a lullaby and you just want to illustrate the lullaby and then sing it to your grandkids? There are a lot of different ways to produce a book and there are different reasons for telling a story. It really frustrates me when people say, we have to prove that diverse books sell because this is a business. And it's like, you know, I understand we exist within capitalism, but many of us come from cultures where storytelling wasn't just about making money. For the most part, storytelling passed on lessons to children. It was a way of building community. It was a way of preserving history. There are so many reasons to tell your own story. You don't have to do it for the money. (laughs) And because print-on-demand technology is so affordable, you can print a book for $2. I mean, it doesn't cost a whole lot of money. And you can do it yourself and you could do it as a family. If you have a family reunion coming up, what if everybody contributed a memory or a poem and you just put that into an anthology and then printed it for your family reunion? That to me is community-based publishing. It's organic. It comes from within your community. It comes from your experience. It reflects your culture and your values. And I would like to see more of that. And I'm happy to teach people how to do that. If they have questions about self-publishing, I get a lot of folks reaching out to me. I've written articles on self-publishing. Just understand why you're doing it. For me, success, I do need to pay my rent. I am waiting on an advance, two advances from two publishers right now. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue to write and I'm going to continue to publish. And I haven't won major awards and that's okay. I'm pretty sure I'm never going to win major awards because I don't write the kinds of things that do get awards. I I'm so happy that I can just write what I want and honor my voice and honor my ancestors and follow in the footsteps of black feminist people who started their own presses. That makes me proud and that makes it worthwhile for me.
0: Thank you so much. So so please tell everybody who wants to hit you up to find out how to self-publish. <laughs> where can they find you online? Yeah. Um, and, you know, not to mention, where can they find your books? Like if they want to purchase, what's the best right. way to keep up with you?
1: Probably the best way is to go to my website zettaelliot.com, and they can subscribe to my blog. They can subscribe to my newsletter. I do a newsletter probably every other month. They can email me, info at Zetta I have a lot of double consonants in my name, so make sure you spell it correctly or it won't reach me. I'm on Twitter at I'm on Instagram at Elliot. I have a Facebook page, author, Zetta Elliott. But the best way is really just go to my website, and there are descriptions of all the books broken down by children, all the books, books, children, teens, adults, the plays, everything is there. All the books can be purchased on Amazon. All the books are available in Kindle format as well. So the books are out there. Dragons in a Bag from Random House is in most bookstores, I think. And if not, you can ask them to order it for you.
0: Thank you so much for being on My American Melting Pod.
1: Thank you. This has been such a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I did. I love listening to authors describe their commitment to their craft. And Zetta Elliott is so committed and so passionate. Plus, I just learned so much. Like, I learned about Black people in Sweden in the 8th century. I have a totally new perspective on self-publishing. It's not a second-class option. It's an option to get your work out faster than mainstream publishers would or to get work that mainstream publishers don't understand and won't publish. And I loved hearing about all of the ways that you can put Black people into fantasy, into history. And the way that Zetta is approaching that just amazes me. Any aspiring authors out there, I hope you were inspired by Zetta's stories. I know I was. And what's clear to me is that Zetta Elliott is truly a literary treasure. And she's leaving an amazing legacy for us all. so much for listening to Episode 6 of My American Melting Pot. If you enjoyed hearing about Zetta Elliott and her work, tell me why or what you learned. You can tweet at me, at Lori Tharps, or leave a message on the blog, myamericanmeltingpot.com. The blog is also where you'll find the show notes for this episode, with links to Zetta Elliott's website, some of the resources she mentioned during the episode, and to some of her books. Our next episode doesn't come out for two more weeks, but that doesn't mean you have to live without Melting Pot content for that long. Visit MyAmericanMeltingPot.com because I post new content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Or follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I love hearing your thoughts and comments about the show. I also love reviews and ratings because they help more people find our podcast So leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 6 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia, where there are no dragons, but there is magic in the air. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty and Tyler McClure. Our PR and marketing intern is Darian Muka. And our theme music was composed by the wonderful Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening to My American Melting Pot. And remember to always live your life in color.